As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. much pop a culture podcast trying to decode the strange cultural signals coming at us from on high today we're talking about musicals on tv with our special guest craig wedren who is one of the people doing the music for zoe's extraordinary playlist right now this is mark lintonmeyer singing high b flat subliminally i'm erica spires and speaking of going high i'm ready for craig to show me the fever All right. into the fire <laughs> taking it higher <laughs> That's better than I could possibly sing it. <laughs> not true. <laughs> and I'm Brian Hurt. And I will not be breaking up in song at any time. Or if I do, that's probably the time when this podcast should end. And I'm Craig Wedren. Craig, welcome. Thanks for having me. So we have talked a couple times before. You're the only one of the only two-time guests on Nakedly Examined Music. So if folks want to hear Craig talking about his own music, but this was a more general topic-oriented thing. I don't know if there's a proliferation of musicals on TV right now, but at least there is a couple and you work on one of them. So that's a trend. It's kind of strange that I'm working on one of them. It's not somewhere I would have imagined myself landing, but I'm very, very happy to be there. And what are you doing on Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist? I and my dear friend and teammate, Bo Body, are composing the underscore for it. So all the instrumental background music that you hear. In this case, it's like pretty spare synth pads and piano stuff. And then, you know, funky drumming. Then it's sort of a jukebox musical. So there are a lot of popular songs from throughout really 50s through now. And those are handled, the backing tracks are handled by somebody who's like on the other, like we're sort of the caboose on the train. We're the last people involved and they're like way at the front because they have to get everything prepped to shoot on camera. So I'm not even sure who that is. I think they were literally on location in Vancouver with production. So you have no input into what those songs are? No, I don't. In fact, I think they were scripted in. The showrunner, it's sort of his story. And I think he scripted a lot of stuff in. I'm not 100% sure about that, but I would imagine. We were not the first composers on the project. And so we missed some of the preliminary stuff. But it feels very tied in with this guy's history and story and kind of emotional arc. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if he, if he wrote it in. At least as many as he could. I was frankly shocked at how big some of those songs were. I mean, I can't imagine how much it costs to get like, help, 
by the Beatles or Satisfaction or even, you know, I Want You to Want Me or they're not paying for the recordings. They're just paying for the publishing, I guess. So So that's a little bit less to pay for the rights to perform the song as opposed to using the actual recording of the song. I might be talking half out my butt, but I think it's about like half the price. Oh, okay. I admit that I don't know all the songs. Most of them I do, and certainly the older ones. But there have been a few in different episodes I've shrugged or looked to my viewing partner to say, you know that one? Have you had that experience or are you so knowledgeable that this is all? No, I don't know some of the newer pop songs. I don't feel so so bad. I depend, actually not even on my son. I have a 12-year-old who couldn't be less interested in today's jams. But Bo, my composing partner on Zoe, his daughter knows it all. So we sort of look to her. She's like, yeah, that's pink. Okay, thanks. I should know pink. I kind of know the answer to this from talking to you before, but you're saying this is a surprising thing for you to be working on. And folks that will have listened to my interview with you know that you started as a punk rocker. So yes, can you say a little bit about, is this, have you just been doing TV so long that in no sense doing cover tunes that are heavily auto-tuned on a very (laughs) pop show that's about as unpunk as possible, that that's no longer in any sense a betrayal of your punk ethos because oh, no, that was long I, since. Can I swear on this show or would you rather I not? You're welcome to swear. I definitely don't give a shit about that particular <laughs> ghetto ass brand of like punk conservatism. For me, even then, when I was a kid, punk was uh, liberation. You can do a pop musical for ABC and you can make a album of noise with your buddies and you can like produce a kid's record and it's more about a purity of heart i would say i love that that was a throwdown calling it a punk conservatism that was awesome (laughs) it really is i i I feel very strongly about that night i always have and weirdly when it comes up it's pretty much this thing like for me punk was about not really letting people say no to you or not obeying other people's N-O, creatively. And it doesn't matter what it is. If you love it and you want to do it, get to it. That's my philosophy. So I feel like, I mean, while aesthetically it's not punk, I love it. I love Zoe. At first I was a little perplexed. I was like, I, I have no idea. This is so strange. It's more musicals that I had a strange mixed relationship with, which I think actually is a holdover from teenage punk rock days where it's like musicals and then green day came out with american idiot so and then it confirmed my um punk rock <laughs> yeah <laughs> hatred of musicals have you ever thought about writing a musical or like have they ever thought about turning wet hot into a musical yeah i mean it might be a disaster who knows i doubt it i mean i think it would be great but the movie's so good and i'm just afraid it would turn into cheese ball musical. Well, can I ask what you thought of the show? I really enjoyed it. It's amazing, right? I love all this stuff. I feel like if they're involved, it's going to be great. Yeah. They got a little ways down the road with a Wet Hot musical and then who knows, you know, making musicals is like making movies. They're so expensive and they take so long to do that. It's amazing that any get birthed, let alone good ones. Very true. My son's a big musical nerd. So I, I sort of had to adjust my goggles. I do musicals and I would not call myself a musical nerd because there are a lot of bad ones and I don't want to just spend my time listening to stuff that I don't enjoy. There are a lot of good ones too. You just, you know, 
when it's with new stuff, you always just have to weed through a bunch of stuff to find the things that stick. It's like any genre. So of the three of us, we actually had the hardest time convincing Erica that this was a good topic because she does this as her day job. And so saying go watch musicals on TV, especially when they're not real musicals, you know, they're not stage musicals put on TV. It is auto-tuned. It is actors, some of whom were clearly cast because of their acting history and not because of their voices. They would not necessarily do this part on Broadway. Erica, did your attitude change going into this week and thinking about it more? Or what's your current thinking? Well, I had to think about why I had that feeling. And then I had to really look at things that I do enjoy and things that I don't enjoy. And it really has nothing to do... Well, I shouldn't say nothing. It has very little to do with the talent of the person singing the song. I am fine with watching an actor who's not much of a singer sing. I think my problem is largely with mastering and uh, it's with cheesiness and auto-tuning. Whereas if you watch, there are so many good musical episodes to point to, and not just episodes, movies and whatnot. But I feel like the ones that I really like are the ones that are playing it for comedy. It's harder for me to get on board with musicals that are trying to pull at your heartstrings when they're on TV. And I don't know why. That's interesting. But what about in theater? Like if you're in a theater, can you handle more heartfelt musical emoting? Yeah, I think I can. I don't know if part of it's just like the magic of being around a bunch of other people and everybody else is crying. So you feel some of that too. I think there is part of that. And it feels more raw. You know, like I like hearing people mess up a little bit. I like a little bit of messiness. Imperfection. And I think it just gets so pristine oftentimes when we see it on television that I'm I'm not as excited about that. Unless, like I said, if, if you're playing it for comedy or if the mastering hasn't been done in that way, like rewatching Parks and Rec, there's a lot of music in that show, but they're not supposed to be great singers. So that's not even an issue. Like there's not the auto-tuning issue happening. What about in movies? Like movie musicals? Yeah. Like, are they three separate categories for you? Like I watched West Side Story recently. Oh. And it's incredible. Like, it's completely amazing. (laughs) And it's not comedic. I mean, they're funny bits, but it just sweeps you up. It's like unavoidable. They're hit or miss for me. I think West Side Story was awesome. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Natalie Wood wasn't singing, right? Correct. She wasn't singing that. So, like, that should bother me. I don't know if it caught me at such a young age that I wasn't even, like, analyzing it at that level yet. But I kind of enjoyed the new Les Mis. I have to say, I I thought they did some of that very well. So it's hard. It it, it really matters. Wasn't the thing with Les Mis that they really were doing kind of live singing? Like they had everybody mic'd and they were singing along to tracks? That's true. Maybe that's why I liked it. Yeah. Like I said, I don't mind if you're a great singer or not. I just get annoyed when they're trying to take singers and make them into a sound they think that we want to hear. Yeah. Like we don't listen to Bob Dylan because he's an awesome singer, you know? Right. Whoa, 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 whoa. We listen to him because he is a Broadway singer. (laughs) What? (laughs) The criterion are different for established musicals, though, because I actually just saw the movie version of Sweeney Todd recently and was kind of irritated. Like, of course, Johnny Depp is great, but... It is irritating. Those are hard songs to sing, and... They could have either auto-tuned the crap out of him, which I don't know that they did. It certainly wasn't slammed in your face in the way that, or let him sing it like he wants, which he did okay, but there's so many other people that could have done a better singing job on that. I'm with you on that. 
I have no problem with replacing somebody's voice if it helps convey the song and the music. I mean, obviously, you know, as with anything, there's a fine line between producing something well and overproducing it to within an inch of its life, you know, pitch stuff and mixing stuff. And my son loves The Greatest Showman. I did not love The Greatest Showman. I just didn't feel it. Yeah. And a lot of people, mostly kids I know, really love it. And like kids whose taste I respect, you know, so maybe it's an age thing. But to me, it just felt like it was under glass. I think that you just hit on it there, Craig, with the idea of feeling it or not. Because Mm-hmm. Well, and just just for me, but for a musical to work, you know, in my mind, it's so artificial for someone to break out in song that it works when you feel the character has to break out in song because of the the emotion that's going on, right? You, they couldn't keep communicating in words what's happening to them. And so they have to break into that thing that is happening in a musical. And I think that might be why it's harder to do on TV. You know, TV is sort of formulaic. You know, you're not maybe hitting the dramatic highs and lows or the comedic highs and lows that you're getting in something that is, you know, a a two hour or three hour play or a movie. Not that it can't be done, but it's just harder. And if it's just perfunctory, if it's like, well, it's time for a song now, it never works. But if it's like we're building and we're building and it's words and it's words and now it's music like that, I really feel that. Well, it's interesting with thinking about uh, Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist because whether or not the songs are always earned or built up to, they're so integral to the basic concept of the show that the fact that there is ever a song or somebody breaking out into song, it's like immediately straight out the gate, you sort of sign up for it. You're like, oh, that's the whole premise of the show. Got it. Then it's more of a question of does it succeed in the feeling department? Does it succeed in the, in the production and performance department? I mean, I hadn't thought of it like that, but it's kind of ingenious. I feel like Zoe inverts or subverts that whole idea because she's attuned to what's going on and singing happens and she realizes that what she is not perceiving to be an emotional thing happening is for someone else, Mm -hmm. right? And so that's what's driving the story along. And so we're getting cued that, oh, well, this is just a thing for her, but for the person singing, they are going through some struggle. And so she keys in on it and that drives the story forward. It's very clever. Right. It's subtext as musical, which is kind of what all songs are. I mean, right? It's like the stuff you can't say or the stuff that's too, you know, it's opera. I guess what would determine for me whether or not this is, you know, a form in growth rather than a blip. Can people's expectations, I think exactly what Brian was talking about, that it's so unnatural that someone would break into song, that this is what I think took us out of the age of musicals, that musicals were very common. You're talking about Natalie Wood, you're talking about Singing in the Rain, that kind of stuff. And in films that became, you know, much, much the exception rather than the rule. And now we feel like, oh, a musical is like the musical about Queen. because. Of course they're singing, like that's what they were doing. Or once, you know, these things where the people in the musical are making music and that is their whole reason for doing it. And I think a good half of the things that we're looking at here, you know, Nashville or Smash, not so familiar with with some of them, but even they rise, another recent one, that's also the conceit is that it's about people who are making a musical or in, in bands. And, you know, that's just a, a wonderful sort of inherently exciting thing of people discovering their musical talent, 
their chemistry together and making, you know, maybe rising in the business, whatever. So there's kind of a built-in type of show there. But for something to be an ongoing, it seems like Zoe's and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend recently both had a shtick that it's like somebody that is going insane or something some explanation for why there is singing. So in none of these does it seem like we've actually had, maybe I'm just not thinking of some examples, a real old-time musical where there's just no explanation. Just people just sing. That's all. On TV. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Is that a challenge? I'll take you up on that. I, so you're talking <laughs> about cop rock? Honestly, I think one of my big kind of still sticks in my craw things that I had to get over about musicals is because of the TV show Cop Rock. I remember it from like when I was, I think I was a freshman in, in college. Was it 87 or 88 or something like that? And I just remember I, I would be coming back to the dorm at NYU with all my friends from a night out on the town. And, you know, in the little TV room, it would always be, I just remember, I remember Cop Rock was on and we would just sit there and watch it and laugh at it. And the original Glow was on, like the original Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling, you know, was on at like midnight. And we used to sit there and watch and laugh at that. And joke's on me, because here I am (laughs) doing Zoe and doing Glow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But clearly Cop Rock, now I only saw just a clip of that on the internet, but what was it about that specifically that just set the form back, apparently, for a couple decades? (laughs) It was a serious show. It was a cop drama, right? Wasn't it? It was a cop drama. It was like New York precinct. And they would just break out in a song. It might be genius. I think it would probably be worth going back and watching. Craig, I mentioned this, I think, on an earlier podcast, but they did a a post-mortem on that show. And apparently, test audience loved it. They just thought it was the greatest thing. But people at home hated it. And they realized, looking back, that test audiences were watching it as a group. And they were actually an audience. And they had this shared experience. And people at home, you know, just got the douche chills and were like, I can't watch this. This is ridiculous. <laughs> so who knows? Oh, cop rock. Did it last more than a season? I think it was just one and done. And yet here we are talking about it 30 years later. With most musical products, it would of course be a question of who's doing it, right? That if Green Day does a TV musical, perhaps depending on your taste, that might not be the thing that you would want to last more than a season or an episode. Yes. But it seems, you know, that has not been the focus so far, right? That in all the ones I can think of, they're mostly cover songs, right? Was that the thing with the cop rock was all original music? And original music is sort of, and that's kind of inherently problematic. Crazy Act Girlfriend is original, right? Yeah. And really good, like really high quality. That is original music, but it's parodies. So it's mostly style parodies and played for comedy. Uh So that is one of the only kinds of music that you don't have to hear more than once to appreciate, to fully appreciate. And you can sort of give it a wider berth because it's funny, you know, you can get away with some stuff that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do if you were being dead serious, you know, like jazz hands or high kicks. I just rewatched the musical episode of Community where they were all like recruited into the Glee Club. It was almost like a disease or something. This guy like got each of them at a time to come into the Glee Club. And that was all original music. And I was just reading about the episode. Evidently, their show creator like hated Glee so badly. And so the whole episode was just to make fun of Glee. Hmm. And the music's not very good, but the episode is pretty funny. So it kind of worked. I mean, obviously, it also just depends on the composer. You know, it's like the composers 
for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend are really, really good. And I think, didn't Ludwig Gorenson do Community? And he's really, really good. I'm not sure. I, I tried to look it up and it wasn't readily available for me to find. Yeah, I think it was Ludwig. It's like we were saying at the beginning, you got to sift through a whole lot of, you know, you got to shovel a lot of shit to find gold. Mm-hmm. If you happen to eat gold before. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had never watched the famous Buffy musical episode until today that I watched about the first half of it. And I felt like, so Joss Whedon himself did those songs. I know it's praised and I was kind of familiar enough with the show. I've seen a couple seasons of it. You know, I kind of knew who most of the characters were, but I was not that excited about the songs themselves. Like it felt like it was a dilettante. It was somebody, I want to try this and I have the power. And I mean, it's funny that it seemed like there was an internal thing. The first song in it is Buffy complaining about how routine her, you know, slaying of vampires is. And it sounded like it was, this show has been going on for so goddamn long. <laughs> And six seasons in that we got to do something to shake this up. I am getting bored of the show. It was a jump the shark. It's a well-loved episode. If you look at IMDb, I think it might be one of the highest ranked Buffy episodes. And in part, I mean, it really, there are some key things that happen in the story. The songs, there's a lot of pastiche, which kind of makes it easy to like them because they go for different styles and recognizable, you know, musical types of things. So you didn't watch to the end. No. So it's actually a demon. Well, you uh, maybe. Yeah, they reveal that at the beginning. So it's not just people singing. Right. There's someone's theory dismissed early on that a demon is making them all do it. And of course, that's what it is. So making them all be musical. I give them a little bit of leeway on that because Joss, that's not what he does. So it didn't bother me as much. And it's not what the show is. So it's like clearly novel. Right. I was like, okay, I'll play along for one episode. Whereas with South Park, Trey from South Park is actually like a really talented writer. Oh my God. Incredible. But again, comedy. I've been like trying to rack my brain because I'm like, South Park is amazing. And obviously Book of Mormon is completely brilliant, but also they're great songwriters. I will say I didn't get through Cannibal the Musical. I might even <laughs> own that on DVD and I, I don't think I watched it all the way through. <laughs> I've seen it so many times. The pre-South Park. Have you been watching, what about the live... TV musical phenomenon. Greece and what else have they done? Like Peter Pan, I guess. Sound of Music. Jesus Christ Superstar just happened again. They they released that, re-released that on Easter. Really? I didn't see the redo of it. Yeah, they did it like what? Was it two years ago, I want to say? They did it and it was quite good. And then they re-released it this year. I mean, I think Jesus Christ Superstar is perfect. It's incredible. In fact, that was the musical that changed my mind about musicals. That opened oh. me up. I didn't hear it until I was like, probably in my 20s or 30s, because I was like, now, because my mom was into Jesus Christ Superstar. And when I, I think I saw the movie, and probably aside from Hair, I loved Hair growing up. But again, those songs are just so, they just get right up in there, and they don't let go. And it's a beautiful movie. Does Zoe's even count as a musical in this sense? Because if you're talking about one of the classic musicals, it's got a composer, it's got their voice coming throughout the whole thing, whereas it has certain surface characteristics. The music fits into the plot in a similar way, but it's not a Trey Parker. It's not your original music or something that is cutting through and providing a unity to it. It's more a little more artificial than that. Yeah, it's a jukebox musical. 
Yeah, jukebox musical. Why do you have to put something in a box, man? <laughs> so it was also revealing to me yesterday, I was trying to f- find some more examples of this. And I had just in a search found that show soundtrack. So it's just from last year. It's on Netflix. I'd never heard of it. It's a drama, you know, so there's dramatic things going on. And then somebody breaks into song and it looked exactly like his always thing. Like, in other words, there's a whole music video going on and then it switches to another character and he breaks into song. It wasn't until the first character broke into song the second time and had a totally different voice that I realized this is not as always. This is them lip syncing. Oh, to the original songs. That's interesting. To the original tracks. It was Sia was the first song. I just am too musically ignorant to, to have known what Sia sounded right, like. And right. this was not an original song to this. And so I'm wondering, like, that just seems weird. Like, that's a different thing. But yet the audience experience to a point is still going to be similar to what's going on when they're watching Zoe. In one sense, I get that because people have such strong, at least in my experience, in my life, I have such strong relationships to the original recordings of things. Even when people like ELO or Steve Miller, REO Speedwagon, like all these classic rock acts re-recorded their catalogs because their original contracts or their original labels owned the master recordings. And so they can make more money with licensing if they re-recorded exactly the same. But even just the slightest difference, even just like the sound of or the vibe of the room that something was recorded in, it just leaves me outside of it or prickles somehow. So in theory, I can understand sitting in a room having a concept like that, like we're going to use the original songs and people just lip sync because everybody loves the originals and people always sort of bristle at kind of rehashes of things. But I can also see it just feeling completely strange and meaningless, like in practice, you know, like in fact, it would also be so expensive. I can't help but think of that. Yeah, it's probably why it lasted a season, right? It either had to be a smash hit or it wasn't going to work. Yeah. Am I right that none of us had heard of that show? So I guess it was not a... Totally never heard of it. (laughs) I feel like musicals have this sort of reanimation once every handful of years because there's one great one. Like I remember after Chicago, there were like a ton of musicals. And then everybody was like, well, the musical's dead. And it's like, nope, just really hard to make a good one. Wasn't La La Land a straight musical? I mean, I know there were parts where he was a performer, but they got on their cars and did a whole thing. And that movie won Best Picture for 10 seconds. I mean. (laughs) Yeah, it totally did. And there's some really beautiful songs in that. Yeah. And not contemporary either. Like I thought the musicals were moving like Greatest Showman. So that, you know, basically it's stuff that could be on the radio right now. That's the why I think that soundtrack has done as well as it has is because just about every song in there, you just wouldn't even know it was from a musical necessarily. Whereas, yeah, La La Land is straight up, you know, what, 1960s jazz kind of. And the style of the movie is too, visually. Maybe that's the way it worked. I mean, at least for most people, it stuck to a genre in both the form of the storytelling and in the the music itself. It didn't feel uh, contrived. It felt like, well, take it or leave it. This is clearly what you're passionate about, which you can't fault that. Totally. And if what we're talking about is fundamentally, it's about feeling, it's about, I don't know, some sort of purity of intention or execution that, you know, same thing with like Hedwig. It's pure. I mean, it's great and brilliant and 
perfect too, but you know, it's so clearly one person's obsession. So what has the interaction process been like? So you say you already receive the completed vocals, you know, to a click track. There's already something that you're just filling out the arrangements. Is that all of the songs are done by somebody else. All of the underscore is done by me and Bo. Gotcha. Okay. They would have had to do the songs for it ages before shooting. And we're not a part of that process. Okay. So this entire episode was based on my misunderstanding. Which is great because you've done so many other awesome things. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But you have written a lot of music for film and television. I have. I've written a lot of songs. And in fact, like songs sort of inverting the whole thing for the film and the first... No, actually, both seasons of Wet Hot American Summer on Netflix and the original movie all had fake diegetic. Is that fake pop songs? Yes. I had to remind myself of what that distinction was. So diegetic is there are people actually performing it in the show as opposed to the regular way a soundtrack would happen is that just like there's mysterious lighting coming from somewhere, there's mysterious music off that is non-diegetic music. Although I thought, I thought diegetic music had to be that it's like playing in the room, like your radio's on in a scene. Exactly. Somebody's playing a radio or a guitar or whatever. Yeah. Right, right. But not like the montage scene. Like a montage scene isn't diegetic. That's like a, is it? I don't know. In a Mel Brooks movie, if they pan to the side and you see the orchestra, right? And then that's sort of goofing or going somewhere in between. Yeah, exactly. So for Wet Hot, I and my team wrote well. And for the movie, Theodore Shapiro and I, and then for the TV show, I and my team wrote like, I think all of it. No, I guess not all of it, but most of the diegetic and montage you know, sort of needle drop music, which I'm trying to think of other examples of that, where it's like a world, like you're creating a fake musical world, not a, the genre musical world, but like the musical world is completely contrived or like artificial, but tricks you, which I think is super fun. Did you happen to work on Viva Variety as well? No, I don't know who did Viva. Maybe Teddy Shapiro did it. I'm not sure. But you were in, I saw even in the live band on screen in that, what was the, the biopic of the... Uh, uh, Feudal Stupid Gesture. Yes. So you were doing multiple parts of that, of when various people were, you know, like behind the fake John Belushi. Is that right? Yeah. For Feudal Stupid Gesture, I composed the score and then also created a lot of songs that, I mean, there was one point where we created, what were they called? The Lemmings, I think. It was the pre-SNL first cast black box theater group. It was like their National Lampoon theater group. Right. And they had a lot of original songs. And so we were recreating those songs for the actors to sing on set. So that would be more like, you know, the way it works for Zoe is they, you know, recreate the things to shoot on set. And then I think there might have been an original and then there were some original songs that I wrote that different actors and stuff were singing. And then at the very end, during the funeral, was a cover. There's this sort of recurring cover of Beautiful Dreamer, which then I sang over the funeral food fight. (laughs) And that is, I believe, in the public domain, right? I think so. Yeah, Stephen Foster. Yeah, it must be. It must be by this point. It's just a gorgeous song. Craig, can you explain what parts of School of Rock you were responsible for? Yeah, sure. 
I wrote the song Heal Me, I'm Heartsick, which the evil band, what were they called? No Exit, I think. It was basically Jack Black's band that kicks him out and then goes against him with a different singer in the Battle of the Bands and wins. Suffice to say, I wrote the winning Battle of the Bands power ballad. (laughs) And then the score. There's not a lot of score in that one, but what's there is mine and and it's heavy. (laughs) Did your song get transferred over into the stage musical version or did they... Just replace just about everything. In Bastards. The stage no, it didn't make it to the stage. <laughs> I think the only song they kept was School of Rock by, uh, come on, who wrote that song? I can't remember right now. You didn't tell Lloyd Webber like what a huge fan of Jesus Christ Superstar <laughs> you were so that he'd be like, yeah, man, let's use your stuff. I forgot that was actually a Lloyd Webber thing. <laughs> yeah, it was Andrew Lloyd Webber. I never saw it. My son saw it. He said it was good, but I boycotted that feeling like a little baby. I went in for it. You did? Like so many things, yes. It was one of my first big uh, Broadway auditions. Oh, that's amazing. And they were like, you look far too young to be a principal. And I was like, well, I'm actually the right age, but okay. I'll take it. Thanks. Are you doing anything right now? No. Oh, Everything's no, of course you're, of course you're not doing anything. <laughs> Our industry right is dead. Have you heard? Were you doing anything <laughs> up to closures? I had a gig like a week before, but I didn't, I was not really. Got it. During this time. Yeah, no. At 7 p.m., just stand outside her window, and that's her. Yeah, exactly. I am supposed to. At <laughs> 7.05 today, we are supposed to all sing New York, New York from our windows. I have a feeling that in Washington Heights, people will not be doing that. <laughs> Is it every night at 7? Well, every night at 7, I guess people like bang things and clap for five minutes for all the workers. But tonight in particular... There's something going around that we're all also supposed to sing New York, New York from our windows. That's sweet. And my question is... Who picks the key? Exactly. <laughs> Who picks the key? Is it just like happy birthday where everybody knows what the key is? Everybody I don't think so. just falls into it. <laughs> It'll be like Gal Gadot's video with everyone will have their own key. And it doesn't no. matter. Has anybody watched any of the Broadway musicals that are available during quarantine? No. Because I'd actually be really curious about that. Like, I'm, I'm very curious because theater and live performance gets so flattened when it doesn't translate to film. I'm super curious because opera has been doing so well, which is the kind of musical theater. Like, remote operas have been doing so well over the past few years with people going to movie theaters and renting them at home. It'd be interesting if Broadway shows now after this event became more of a stay at home or go to the movies event. That would be really nice. I wish they would. I know that there was something going on last week where they were supposed to have a big benefit concert and every uh, Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS and all of the people involved were like, okay with it, with not getting paid because they were doing it as a charity event, except for AFM, the Musicians Union. Mm-hmm. who said like, nope, we're not giving you free work. Fucking musicians. I know, damn musicians, right? Great. Like, no, I, I get it. I get it. But also, of course, it's these are very, very different times. Yeah. So I don't know how different it would be for, because like you guys clearly have to deal with unions with the TV world. Yeah. Is there just that much more money in it, I assume? Except for composers who don't have a union. <laughs> no. Oh, last. Yeah. No union for you? 
musicians union and, you know, little sag after when I get to appear in my friend's movies. Uh, Craig, I haven't seen any musicals, but I've seen a few plays in the movie theater, like from the National Theater in England. What's it like? Live and or I guess recorded earlier that day. And it's a different experience. It, it does not feel like watching something on TV, certainly. Nor does it feel like live theater, I imagine. No, and part of it is you're so close to everybody, right? Because they're not, they don't just plant a camera in the audience and you're stuck with your view, which is part of it. And I know it's a little psychotic, but I feel like part of the excitement of going to the theater is knowing that I can ruin it, that I yeah. could just get up and start screaming. And I don't, <laughs> just like I don't throw myself off the top of a tall building, but it's exciting knowing that I can. <laughs> and yeah, if, if I just get up and start screaming in the movie theater, this recording that was done six hours ago in England is going to keep going, right? It, it's fine. They're not going to be disturbed by me. It's just going to annoy your neighbors. And, and my wife. But right. I understood maybe this presaged the crisis a little bit. They had recorded Hamilton, the original performance, a couple of years ago, and they're making a movie out of it. Out of the theatrical version? Mm -hmm. That's right. And I guess it sold for some enormous amount of money. Lin-Manuel Miranda said something about how everyone who has been congratulating themselves for getting to see the original cast, this is a chance for everybody else to see the original cast. Speaking of Hamilton, I remember being so impressed with the, well, I mean, obviously with the, with the show, but with the soundtrack because of exactly what we're talking about, which is it felt really direct and really unadorned. It felt like they played it raw and they played it extremely well and then they put it out it felt so unfussy in it felt hip-hop which i thought was really cool and i think probably really rare nowadays yeah it's not gonna be improved by better costuming and like shooting it on location in making a real movie out of it it would not make it seem more natural. Yeah, that's interesting because I'd heard they were making a movie of it and I was trying to imagine all the different things they might do. And, and actually in keeping with the way the soundtrack is such, it's just exactly what they played. It sort of makes sense that they would do a very good job of filming the actual show. For some reason in quarantine, I, I've had movies stop making sense, like absolutely stuck in my brain as something I want to watch as a family. And so far, I've been shot down every night that I suggest it, but <laughs> but I'm gonna I'm gonna ram that home. That too, I think that's like an incredible example of just a live performance that transcends live performance and sort of establishes its own genre as like live concert, documentary, musical experience, and theater. That's a whole other genre, which would be interesting. You know, a TV series of just really, really well-documented and edited live performances by different artists who have mm -hmm. evocative or electric or unique theatrical shows. But again, is some of the appeal of that because you are already a fan of that, because you already know those songs in some form, because there's even you know some of these optional channels that you can get through Amazon Prime or whatever that will just give you access to a lot of concerts, I'm sure those do not have anywhere near the popularity of Zoe's or any, you know, regular TV that if you're actually putting the best performers in the most elaborately staged, stop making sense level, you know, with a film director behind it, 
performance is and stacking that against a sitcom. No, it wouldn't do as well. I mean, we, people want stories. This is actually something that David Byrne in his book, How Music is Made, really harps on that musicians are naive to think you can just go up and play all your songs live in a row and that will be interesting enough to people. That no, like it doesn't occupy enough of the brain. So that's why he goes out of his way and, you know, has his whole band recently with... With SNL? Yes. So they could walk around the stage and, you know, I was always... It was so weird. Always doing some trick or other, adding dancers and things to fill up more of that part of the brain because he really, he really understands how people get things. And mm -hmm. even that, since it doesn't have a story, seems to fall short of what a musical could perhaps do. Right. You know, what I really liked and that was sentimental and was also silly was Mamma Mia. Love. And I don't know why I liked it, but I've seen it two times live. I saw the national tour. I saw a community theater production and I saw the movie and I loved it every time. Like, why does that work? I saw a bunch of 10 year olds doing it. And it was one of my favorite things I'd ever seen. It was like all <laughs> sexual innuendo completely flew over all of their heads. There's like baby daddies and who knows whose baby who is and somebody maybe is pregnant. It was incredible. And it actually, I wasn't a huge ABBA fan growing up. I mean, you know, catchy songs, whatever. But somehow that movie, it like made it make sense. Was it also because it was really beautiful? Like we all want to go what, was it Santorini, probably, where they were filming it? But it was also so trashy. So like sort of Euro trashy, you know, it was beautiful, but it was like a little like I wanted to wash my hands afterward. <laughs> Bunch of Americans and people from the continent ruining it, <laughs> running roughshod over it, these <laughs> poor Greeks. <laughs> but I wonder, what is it? I mean, I kind of feel like what we keep saying or, or sort of what we're not saying, but what we keep coming back to is that there's no formula. It just, some things are magical, you know? Yeah. And some things are very popular that don't feel magical for whatever reason. Anything that's really good, I feel, is not universally beloved. And that's certainly true of just about everything that we've mentioned. And there mm -hmm. are some people who really just don't like and don't get Mamma Mia, including ABBA fans who just think it is a disaster and kind of ruin something nice. That's fine. I mean, I, I don't love the movie. I feel like maybe some of the casting choices didn't work for me, but there are still parts of it I like. Brian hates Meryl Streep. Mm. Spread it around. Oh, right. I just, I'm not crazy about James Bond's singing voice. Yeah. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> I find Pierce Brosnan's, like, watching him, If again, if we're talking about genuine performance, and some sort of directness of expression. I think he's wonderful in that movie, despite his voice. You can literally see him. He's like practically recoiling from himself as he sings. And it's so endearing, I find. Because <laughs> like he's completely self-aware. He's totally committed to it. And he's just like, he's like the awesome, awkward dad, which I think is, mm -hmm. I, I actually think people respond to that. I'm like, yeah, everybody knows the songs. You don't have to get it perfect. Yeah. That kind of reminds me of my wife. One of her favorite movies is My Best Friend's Wedding. So that she and my daughter will watch that periodically. And that's sort of a half musical, which seems kind of a rare thing, but it, it done in sort of a Zoe kind of way in that there's a reason why people are singing. 
but there's still instruments in the background that shouldn't be there. There's artificial elements to it. And also some similarly weird, you know, some of it is over the top. I guess I don't know if they had pitch correction back in the 90s or whenever that came out, 97, but sounds strangely processed. But then part of the point of that, like even there's a a karaoke scene of Cameron Diaz singing much, much worse than she actually can in real life. (laughs) That that's kind of the whole point of it. So it's this weird mishmash of just trying to make it feel though people are just so happy they're just bursting into song. Have there been any karaoke movies, like movies about karaoke? What? Duets. Have you seen duets or duet? Is it called duet or duets? Yeah. With what's her face? Paltrow. Paltrow. And her dad, right? Bruce Paltrow. Oh, wow. I've never seen it. It's supposed to be sweet, right? It's charming. It's Yeah, it's not a great film, but there are some really beautiful moments in mm-hmm. it. My favorite moment is Try a Little Tenderness. When that happens, it's such a lovely duet. Maybe you should watch that. Yeah, you should watch that one during this time. I feel like the best in show people should probably make a show about competitive oh, yeah, karaoke. karaoke. Like That's just ripe for uh, <laughs> the Christopher Guest treatment. Uh-huh. My whole family has had karaoke at our weddings. Like That's just what we do. That's awesome. It's probably a little intimidating. We haven't been focused on film here, but just what's the Mighty Like the Wind? Is that the name of it? A Mighty Wind. Yes. That is such a great example of this. I mean, in the Spinal Tap tradition of original songs played for comedy, done in a naturalistic way, that has all the buttons. Like that should be actually the formula. I think that also transcend the screen. You know, I mean, sure. We would listen to my friends and I would listen to Big Bottom and I don't know. Give me some money. There's some good songs in there. <laughs> well, maybe that's the difficulty that if I guess the way that uh, Crazy Extra Girlfriend dealt with that is by having like three different writers mm-hmm. so that it was different people. Mm-hmm. Actually, I just interviewed one of the guys that does music for Bob's Burgers, this cartoon that apparently has had more and more music that they have. Who did you interview? Chris Maxwell from Elegant 2. I love that man. (laughs) He's a wonderful human. So you'd have to divide the labor up because you just couldn't keep up the pace of writing a Spinal Tap quality musical TV show. Yeah, there's a lot of music in Bob's Burgers. I mean, a lot of songs in Bob's Burgers and a lot of them are really good. And I guess, actually, coincidentally, one of the composers for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend lives like three doors down from me. We just throw tomatoes at each other's windows. Well, we should say, we already mentioned this in our last discussion, but Adam Schlesinger in memoriam. So one of the the most talented writers from that, the guy who co-wrote That Thing You Do. That's a heartbreaker. I love That Thing You Do. And music and lyrics. Oh, yeah. If you're going to make a movie about how great a song is, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a lot of freaking pressure to have a great song at the center of that that is actually convincing. So, Yeah, a great song. And also, but one that you believe is a one-hit wonder. Absolutely. Yeah. Both of those movies, I mean, music and lyrics, not as great of a film, but I think both of those movies had some really beautiful sentimental moments. And they were both essentially musicals. But then again, they were musicals about people who were musicians. I think that thing you do is kind of great, you know, stem to stern. At least I haven't seen it in years, but I just loved it. Yeah, well, that's that excitement. You know, the, actually the Bohemian Rhapsody I just watched tries to do, Ugh. but doesn't quite do actually as well as a fictional Boy, version. Does it not do it. <laughs> I mean, but apparently the rest of the world disagrees. 
I have many friends who said I had to see it and I just can't bring myself to do it. Because it's terrible. (laughs) You've missed your chance for like the reason to see it. And that is having watched their Live Aid performance on YouTube a million times, to see it in the movie theater where I feel more like I'm in Wembley Stadium was kind of awesome. And they do an incredible job. Like the last 20 minutes of that movie are incredible where it's just Live Aid. And the whatever they did, I mean, it sounded like a composite or remixes of different tracks and different elements from different performances. But the music in a good sounding theater is so incredible. I mean, so amazing that I literally think that it kind of fooled the entire world into thinking it was an awesome movie just because the music sounded oh. so great. <laughs> the first 15 seconds are extraordinary of Brian May playing the the 20th Century Fox fanfare on his guitar. That's pretty awesome. And the casting is great. I mean, the the guy who played Brian May and Roger Taylor, like he really, it's like uncanny, uncanny valley territory. Like, is that real? Yeah, Brian May, that was like time travel, right? That was, in particular, I thought was really yeah. pretty crazy. Okay, so it's not that bad a movie, but it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. <laughs> I have to give a shout out to Once, though, because that is where I got my in into the New York theater scene is doing the musical and the national tour. I loved that movie when I saw it. And I listened to the soundtrack nonstop. My husband and I had just moved to Boston from a small town and like, I was so cold and so lonely that summer or that that winter. I just listened to this really lonely, sad music that it just got into me and gave me some sense of both longing and joy. And then I got to, you know, do the musical and Glenn Hansard is just such a lovely human also and was instrumental in both of movie and worked a lot on the musical version as well. I mean, I didn't have nearly that dramatic a life experience at the time, but I had the same response. So I guess a TV show based on that model has been Nashville, which if you're writing about multiple musicians, then you can have multiple songwriters. You can keep up the pace. I only watched part of the first season of that. I think I was watching Hulu with commercials or something at the time. And my wife and I could not manage to sustain the interest through three minutes of commercials. That maybe tells you that we weren't that excited, but apparently that was generally well regarded. People love Nashville. I, I I haven't watched it. What's her name? Who's the who's that with? Connie. Connie Britton is one of the. Or I think she's awesome. That's a serious assignment to have to. Well, I suppose you. I suppose you get a stable of songwriters as opposed to having a a single one. But that's a fun challenge. It's like okay, we're going to write hits every week. I mean, that's why it's so hard, I think, to make a great or consistent TV musical is just because of the just because of the condensed production schedule, the compressed production schedule. It's so fast and so relentless. And how often it does it happen to you where you'll write something and they're like, actually, can you change that? We need it by tomorrow. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot. And they just don't know how hard it is to actually create music. I mean, that's what I get paid for is like, honestly, I think most composers get paid for that stress more than anything else. (laughs) You know, it's not so much the music. There are a billion people who can make music that nobody notices on TV, right? There are not a lot of people who can collaborate like that in that super stressful weekly window. I find it very, very fun and exhilarating. 
except when I want to throttle myself forever, having chosen that. (laughs) But that doesn't happen that often. That doesn't happen that often. It really is fun. It sounded like you had a freaking machine going there, you know, not only with in your with your production house and then, oh, here's a guy that does strings and here's a guy you just be able to instantly call on loads of talent and talk to them very quickly and just get things churned out in a way that doing your first soundtrack, was, it's a far cry from that. There are a lot of people in LA who are kind of part of that machine. But for me, the real, not secret, but the magic is finding people who can work like that, but who have that kind of spirit of Discord records, taking it back to kind of punk rock, where it's familial and it's fun and it's wildly creative and it's collaborative and it's, you know, as non-egoic as it can be given the nature of artists and musicians and stuff. But it's really fun. It's very sweet. It's like a little musical love army. (laughs) <laughs> well, that's a much better thing to end on than us uh, trashing Bohemian Rhapsody. So <laughs> thank I'm you for so that. I'm so sorry. I couldn't help myself. <laughs> I simply could not help myself. That is what the podcast is here for. We're, we're happy to hear it. I would say, even as those words were coming out of my mouth, I was like, maybe they'll edit this. Uh, do I care? I don't care. Do I care? I care. I don't care. <laughs> All those people that made that are going to take it personally and they're never going to hire well, you. Just, who knows like who, you know, <laughs> karma's funny like that. Do you have anything to plug before we get out of here? While we're in quarantine, I'm doing daily live choral meditation music online from 5 to 5.30 Pacific on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Although the recordings stay up, I guess, on Facebook and, and YouTube. It's just me singing with a looping pedal that creates these like huge ambient soundscapes sort of like if brian wilson were singing brian eno and and there's a podcast of it too called sabbath sessions with me craig wedron well we are coming up on that time so we will all log off here and go go listen to you do that cool it was really nice talking to you guys you too thank you so much craig thanks craig thank you Thanks. I guess we'll, let's say say goodbye to the people. Bye, people. Bye, people. Thanks, everybody. Everybody be well. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 